Thank you. Thank you very much. God bless you. It's always a joy to be here at Riverside. It's such a, a blessing for our church to be able to, uh, to invite Pastor Hubbard and Pastor King to speak with us. It's always a great joy to be here to worship. Your uh, worship team just crushed at both services. I was so blessed to, to, to join in song worship. And uh, so thank you very much. And I want to thank you for your church, for all that uh, Riverside does for our community. Uh, you know, Ken and Mary, the mission team is going off this week. Uh, eight years ago, uh, I actually accompanied your church, along with Pastor King, uh, to a trip to Brazil. And that, that trip to Brazil was so impactful in my life that I went back to our church and said, we need to start sending people to Brazil. And so we actually have a team going this summer from our church. We've been going every year at Richwoods. Uh, because of the vision of this church, the work you're doing there has inspired our church to be more present in the Amazon region there in northern Brazil. And Dream Center Peoria and what's taking place with Mission Peoria, uh, once again, a tremendous blessing to our entire community. A couple of years ago, my son came here and served at Mission Peoria. Our youth group has participated in that. It's been a great blessing to our kids and to our community. So I want to thank God. I want to thank you for this church because it's not just about you. It's not just about you worshiping the Lord. But Riverside truly is a light to our community, and you are inspiring other churches that are inspiring their people and beyond. So the ripple effects are great. Uh, you have a wonderful pastor. John King is a great friend of mine, a great encouragement, and it's a privilege to be here. So thank you. Well, what we're doing is during the pulpit swap, uh, Pastor Hubbard, Pastor King, and myself, we're all talking about some statements that Jesus made in the Gospel of John where Jesus described himself with various I am statements eight different times in the Gospel of John. Jesus gave a portrait of himself by using a statement that used the words, I am. He said things like, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the good shepherd. And in these statements, Jesus is painting a picture of himself. He's helping people to understand who he really is. Now, all of us have self-portraits that we paint of ourselves. Maybe not literally, but, but figuratively and mentally, we have images in our mind of how we see ourselves of the kind of person that we think we are or that we want to be. Sometimes our self-portraits of who we are, who we want to be, uh, is not seen by other people. Sometimes we may have a portrait of ourselves that is different than it actually is. All right? And sometimes we may, that can be positive or negative. Sometimes we may give a portrait of ourselves that we think that we're someone that we're really not. Or sometimes we can beat ourselves up and think that we're less than we really are. But all of us paint pictures of our life. And the same way we have pictures, we have images of who Jesus is. And even if we love God, even if we read the scriptures, we worship every week, some of the images that we have of God can be skewed uh, because of our past, our experiences, things that we've been taught or gone through. And sometimes our images of Jesus are very spot on. But regardless, when the people were, were around Jesus, he was trying to help them understand who he was. But the people struggled with that. Now the problem was not whether the people were drawn to Jesus, because it was very clear in all of the Gospels that when Jesus preached, when he taught, when he did miracles, that crowds of people flocked to him. They just gathered around him. Even when he told people that he healed, tell no one. Don't tell anyone about me. And even when Jesus told people to be quiet and not talk about him, crowds of people just flocked to Jesus because they wanted to see who this man was. They wanted to hear his teaching because the Bible says he taught as no one ever taught before. His very physical presence, the miracles he did, the words he shared, the tone and the tenor of his life. In many ways, he was a bit of an anomaly to people and they were drawn to him. And in John chapters, 
chapter number 8, Jesus makes a description about himself. He uses an I am statement to talk about who he is that is somewhat rather cryptic in the sense that it does not have an attribute. It does not have any kind of a descriptor or qualifier. Rather than saying, I am the door, the way to God, rather than saying that I am the good shepherd or the bread of life or the light of the world, in John chapter 8, Jesus simply said, I am. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And when Jesus said, I am, in the context of this passage, the people were wrestling with this question of who really is Jesus. Once again, the issue was not whether people were looking for Jesus or looking to know what he said. The question was not whether they saw miracles. The question was not whether they were intrigued by what he was saying or the possibility of what he could do for them. The question was, at the core of his being, who really is Christ? Now, in John chapter number 7, if we back up a little bit, in John 7 we read a number of words and phrases that the people were using to try to describe who is Jesus. All right? In John chapter 7, verse number 12, it says that some of the people were saying that he was simply a good man. This is a good guy. I mean, look at him. He's, he's, he's caring for the sick and the lepers and he's healing people. I mean, he's just really a very good guy. In verse 13 of chapter 7, some people say, no, he's not a good guy, but they refer to him as a liar and a deceiver. So the same people are witnessing the same miracles, listening to the same teachings, and some people are saying he's really a good guy, and some people are saying, you know what, I think this guy's a charlatan. I think he's got a different angle. I think he's trying to deceive people. He's trying to lead him down the wrong path. Something's not right here. A few verses later, in verse number 40, Jesus is still doing his thing. And in verse 40, some people call him a prophet. He is sent from God to challenge us, to give us a word from God. He is sent to give us some sort of a message that we need to hear. Verse 41 of chapter 7, some people say that he is the Messiah. It's not just a prophet. Next step up. I think that Jesus is the Messiah, the one sent from God to be the savior of the Jewish people. Now, they envisioned a political military Messiah, but they believed he was the Messiah. In John chapter 7, verse 43, it says this. Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Now, think about this. Jesus is preaching and teaching. He's not hurting anybody. He's preaching and he's teaching he is touching people. He is doing miracles. Crowds are flocking to him. But the essence of who he is, the people are divided. He's a good man. He's a good teacher. No, no, no. He's a deceiver. I think he's a prophet. I think he's the Messiah. I think this guy is a liar. Now, the, the rhetoric continues in verse uh, chapter number 8. After seven, people are questioning who Jesus is. They're divided because of him. Now the religious leaders, they get involved in this. They start prodding him with questions. How do we know what you're saying is true? Who can witness? Who can testify to what you say? Because you see, when Jewish rabbis would teach, they would always quote other people. Rabbi so-and-so, Rabbi Shammai says this, and Rabbi so-and-so. Every time they taught, they had to quote another rabbi. But when Jesus talked, he didn't quote anybody else. And so by what authority are you saying these things? Who is a witness to what you are saying? And, the, and the, the rhetoric escalates to where later in chapter number 8, verse 48, here's what the religious leaders say. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Now, demon-possessed speaks for itself. What they are saying is, you really are not from God. You are here and sent by the devil. You are doing Satan's work. Now, there is nothing that Jesus said or done that would have 
uh, accounted for that, but some of the people were jealous. They couldn't explain him. They couldn't put him in a box. And so they said, clearly, you are of the devil. But the word Samaritan is a bit different. The word Samaritan, to call Jesus a Samaritan, which was fundamentally not true, by the way, and they knew it, but in many ways, that was an a racial epithet. Because Samaria was a country that was located right next to Israel. And several years earlier, what happened was that Jews, uh, during the time, beginning the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, many of the Jews began to intermarry with foreigners. And as they began to intermarry with foreigners, many of those people settled into the area now called, or what was then called in Bible times, Samaria. And the Jews would look at the Samaritans, and they literally would refer to them as half-human. They would call them dogs. They were worthless. They were not credible. They were called half-breeds and illegitimate children. And the Jews had such, they were so despising of the Samaritans and the Samaritans of the, of, the, of the Jews in Israel that they would often not talk to each other or acknowledge each other. And if they were, they would often use these very cutting words to describe it. As a matter of fact, many Jews were so, they, they so despised the Samaritans that if they were traveling to the east, they would often intentionally go all the way around Samaria. It would be like traveling to Ohio and saying, you know what, I hate Indiana so much. I'm going to drive all the way down to southern Illinois, I'm going to cut across Kentucky, and then cut up into Ohio, because I'm not going through that Hoosier state. They would go all the way around because they hated them. And now, the religious leaders are saying to Jesus, you're demon-possessed, and you are a Samaritan. You are illegitimate. You're a dog. So Jesus is preaching and teaching and doing miracles. Just like today, we have people who flock to churches, people who turn to services online, people who read their Bibles, people that ask questions, because people 2,000 years ago, as well as today, people are drawn to Jesus, and even people, though, that are drawn to Jesus are asking the question, who is this man? And they are divided because of it. And it's in this context where the people are making all these speculations. Some good, a good man, a good teacher, a prophet, a messiah. No, he's a deceiver or a liar. No, he's a Samaritan. He's a dog. He is, he is demon-possessed. It's in this context that Jesus says this in John chapter 8. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, 2,000 years later, people are still wrestling with the question of who is Jesus. Atheists, agnostics, most of which acknowledge that Jesus was a historical person. They like to say that Jesus was a wise man. He was a good man, much like Aristotle or Confucius. Hindus believe that Jesus was a holy man, a great holy man, one of perhaps thousands or millions of holy men. Buddhists believe that Jesus was an enlightened man. Muslims believe that Jesus was a true prophet, the greatest of all prophets, and the Messiah, but not the Son of God. Jews believe that Jesus was a rabbi or a teacher or a prophet at best, but that's as far as they go. But Jesus said, I am not just a mere man. I am. I am God. Now, when Jesus makes this statement, there are two implications. First of all, when he said, I am, there was a theological implication to what he said. And when Jesus said this, he was making a very loaded statement. Now, a loaded statement is when we say something that stirs emotion or passionate response. 
For example, if you get into a disagreement with your kids or your spouse or on your job, sometimes we can have an argument. But there are certain words that sort of escalate the conversation, right? There are certain words that when you use that word, all right, people just become unhinged. There are certain words that, that spark that kind of passion and emotional response. When Jesus said, I am, he was not just saying a nice little word like, I am the good shepherd, I'm the bread of life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's using no analogy, but he's making a very bold statement that's stirring up an emotional response in the people, which we'll talk about in a moment. Because Jesus was not saying, I'm just a good guy. I'm a real good teacher. Jesus was not just saying, I'm another rabbi, or I'm a prophet, or I'm a political messiah. Jesus was saying, I am God. The verb tense here is present. In other words, he was not saying, I was a God, past tense, and now I'm human. And he wasn't saying, future tense, I'm a human in your presence, but one day I will become a God. He said, I am God. Now, make no mistake about it, the people knew exactly what he was saying. Several years ago, I was at my home, and the, uh, I got a knock at the door, and there were two Jehovah Witnesses at my door. And they didn't know me, and so I said, well, sure, I'd love to talk to you about Jesus. Come on in my house. And so they came in, and uh, we began to have a conversation. And at some point during the conversation, uh, the idea of Jesus being God came up. And I said to them, now, did not Jesus say, though, that before Abraham was, I am, and linking himself to being God? And these two ladies said, oh, well, well, I know that's what you think, but that's not really what the Bible says. And they opened their version of the Bible, and they read it, and it says, before Abraham was, I was. In other words, past tense. He was a created deity. But he was separate from the Father. And so knowing a little bit about, about uh, Jehovah Witnesses, I said, well, what does it really say in the Greek language? Because I know they often carry a Greek New Testament with them. So they open the Greek New Testament, gets her books out, she opens it up, and she reads the phrase to me. Now there's a word for was in, in the Greek language. And then the next phrase, it says before Abraham was, a specific word, there's a different word, actually two words, called ego I me in the Greek, translated I am. So I said, now, isn't it interesting that there's a different word for was here and a different word, you know, it's not the same word here. She goes, well, that's not really a big deal because the phrase ego I me can be translated either, either I was or I am. I said, okay, but, but wasn't there some other phrases I said to her where Jesus said, I am, for example, I am the light of the world. She goes, oh, yes. I said, well, what does it say in the Greek? And she turned in her, her little Greek New Testament, looked it up, it said, ego I me. And I said, didn't Jesus say that I'm the resurrection of life? She said, oh, yeah, she does. And we turned it over. It says, ego, I me. We did this like six times. I said, don't you find it interesting that every single time in the Gospel of John where we read in the Greek language, ego, I me, it's translated I am, except for this very one verse that points to Jesus being God and your Bible wants to translate it differently? Do you have an answer for that? And I said, furthermore, do you know why the people took up stones and wanted to stone Jesus as soon as he made this statement? Why did the people take up stones? Because they knew he was claiming to be God. You know what the two ladies said? Uh, Sir, I'm sorry, but we really have to go right now. Uh, we have other people waiting for us. I said, don't leave. Understand what Jesus is really saying to you and what he's saying to us. Because you see, several years earlier, when God called Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery... Moses argues with God. And then when Moses finally gets to the point where he's willing to go, Moses says in the book of Exodus chapter 3, he said, Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And this is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. And so when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, all the people in the crowd knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was using the exact same phrase that God gave to Moses when they said, what is the name of God? What is your name, God? What do I tell them? And God says, my name is simply I am. And so when Jesus said this, he was saying, I am God. I am the eternal. I am the unchanging, the immutable God who was and is and forever will be. Now, it's easy for us to simply believe this and say, yeah, yeah, I believe that Jesus is God because we have 2,000 years of history. But I want you to think for a second, what would happen if a human being, a person just like you and I, appeared in our midst and said, I am God? We might say, that person is crazy. Call the doctor, write a script. Or we might say that person is arrogant. They really believe they're God. They really believe they're better than us. Or we might say that person is simply ignorant. But you know what the Jews heard when Jesus said, I am? What they heard is blasphemy. You see, in the Old Testament, when God spoke to Moses, he gave Moses ten commandments. Ten core commandments at the heart of Jewish life, belief, and practice. The first four of the Ten Commandments all deal with our relationship with God. The last six commandments all deal with our relationship with people. The last six talk about do not lie, do not steal, do not kill, do not commit adultery. It's all about interaction with people. But the first four commandments all deal with our relationship with God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Now listen to me. The Jews had such reverence for God that they would not even speak his name. Now, in the Old Testament, when the Lord says, I am, there were other passages over 6,000 times where there was a specific name attributed to God. Now, out of those 6,000 usages in the Hebrew Bible, or what we would call the Old Testament, 6,000 times, four Hebrew consonants appear. Now, we do not know what that name is today. You know why? Because the Jews would not even speak it. Sometimes we refer to the name of God as Jehovah. And sometimes we may sing a song that refers to the name of God as Yahweh. But both of those words come from the exact same four consonants in the Hebrew language. Because 6,000 times in the Old Testament, these four consonants appear. But it was often when the scribes would write this word, these four consonants, they would put a word there called Adonai, or the word Lord. Because they had such reverence for the name of God, they believed to even speak the name of God was to diminish God's glory, and to even say the name of God was to blaspheme against him. So they would simply use the word Lord to describe God. So in a context where Jews had such reverence for the name of God, they would not even say his name. They would not utter the word Jehovah. They would not utter the word Yahweh because they believed that was blasphemy. In the midst of that context, Jesus stands in their midst and says, guess what? I am God. Which is why the people picked up stones and they immediately were going to stone him to death because they heard blasphemy. Yet the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. In Jesus we have the representation of the Father. In Jesus we find both God and man. Hebrews chapter 1 says the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being is found in Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, I am, he was making a loaded theological statement. But lest I speak only to our heads today, he was also making a very 
practical statement. And this really is where I want to go on our last bit of time. And I want you to stay with me because this idea of Jesus being I am, yes, there is a theological element. There's something that we must believe that Jesus was not just a prophet. He was not just a good guy. At some point, we have to confess him as Lord and we have to believe in him as the son of God. But there was a very practical element behind these words that Jesus shared. And the practical element is this. It reminds us that of the very nature of God, who he is and how he works in our life, there is still a great sense of mystery. You see, when Jesus stood in front of the people and he said, I am, the people were looking at a man. As a human being, just like every one of us in this room, Jesus wore clothes like everyone else. When he was thirsty on a hot summer day, he asked for a drink of water. After a long day of ministry, the Bible says he wanted food. On one occasion, the Bible says that Jesus, after a long day of ministry, gets on a boat, crosses the Sea of Galilee, and gets tired and takes a nap. Because he was human. Now, the Bible says in the book of Psalms that God never slumbers nor sleeps. God doesn't need sleep. He is eternal and unchanging. But yet Jesus, who said he was God, was right in our midst. And when he was a human form, he said, I've got to take a nap. I'm tired. And so the people are looking at this human being and they're saying, how can you be God and yet still be human? They couldn't get their mind around it. Think about it. If Jesus were to appear today, if Jesus were to appear today in our midst, in Peoria, Illinois, in the year 2017, for 30 years of his life, he might have played soccer as a child at the Christian Center. He might have went to school with your kids or went to the grade school that you went to. For his career, he might have been a nurse or an electrician. He might have been the mechanic that fixes your car, or he might have worked on the line at Caterpillar. And this man that played soccer, this man who went to school, this man who works at OSF or at the gas station down the street, all of a sudden one day begins to teach and preach and say, guess what? I am God. And the people could not rectify that. They could not find that in their mind to be able to understand. Because you see, how can you be God and still be man? But that is exactly what Jesus was saying. You see, all other deities in the history of the world were deities. When you look at other, other gods, Roman gods, Greek gods, all other deities had names. And names confined them to a specific space and time. For example, the, the Zeus was the god of the sky and the god of the thunder. Poseidon was the god of the sea and the waters. And so people would have to pray to the waters. They would need, you know, taking a trip on a boat, I'm going to pray to Poseidon to protect me. I've got to have something about the sky. There's a storm coming. I want to pray for protection and favor. I need rain. I'm going to call out to Zeus. And you would pray to whatever deity you needed help from. But you see, in God, the Lord says, I am. I am the God of the sea, and I am the God of the sky. I am the God of everything. You don't need multiple gods. You just need one God. And the Jews believed in this one God, this one giant God, this all-encompassing, this transcendent, all-knowing, all-powerful deity, one God who did everything. And now there was a human being standing in their midst, a man of flesh and blood. And guess what he's saying? I am God. This is what is known as the incarnation. And the people could not comprehend. They could not comprehend how Jesus, being a man, could be fully human and yet fully God. They could not comprehend this idea of what today we call the Trinity. That God is one, eternal, who exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
even though in the book of Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, let us make man in our image, the Jews didn't know what to do with that. I have a friend who's a Jewish rabbi. I've asked him a couple times, so tell me, how do you, what do you say about that? Ah, well, you know, he sort of jumbles around, he doesn't have an answer for it. Because how can you believe there's one God, but yet the Bible uses a plural pronoun in the book of Genesis. Let us make man in our image. And so many Jews have these questions, and yet Jesus came to sort of implement that. Now, in retrospect, we can look back and say, oh, it makes sense to us. But at the time, the people were blown away. They could not comprehend the idea of the incarnation. They could not comprehend a trinity. They could not comprehend that Jesus was both God and man. It was mystery. C.S. Lewis says this, if Christianity was something that we could make up, of course we would make it easier. But it is not. We cannot compete with simplicity. The incarnation is a truly miracles of miracles. It is God who becomes flesh and dwells among us. As it says in the book of John chapter 1, he, he, he dwelt among us, he tabernacled, he pitched a tent and lived among us. The book of Isaiah said, God's ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. In other words, when we look at Jesus in the incarnation, the people could not rectify, they could not, in their mind, make sense. How can this be a man and yet still be God? And I will tell you this, that while the Trinity and the incarnation may make a little more sense to us today in retrospect, none of us can fully explain these things. And we can never fully understand everything that God does of who he is and what he does in our life. You see, when the people began to question Jesus in John chapter 8, verse, verse 58, the Bible says, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but the Bible says Jesus hid himself, slipping away in the temple grounds. In other words, when the people thought Jesus was blaspheming and they could not comprehend what he was saying, rather than Jesus giving them proof, listen to me, Rather than Jesus giving them proof, which is what they wanted, the Bible says that Jesus hid and slipped away. Now, he could have sent down a miracle. He, he could have pulled a rabbit out of a hat. He could have said, you know what, let me prove to you that I am God and man. But he never proved it. He gave evidence of who he was and the miracles he was doing and the things he was saying, but he never gave proof. And I will tell you this today. 2,000 years later, God gives evidence of his goodness and his power and his glory to you and I who seek him. But he does not always give us the proof that we want. We are called to walk by faith and not by sight. And walking by faith, listen to me, walking by faith is like walking through life backwards. I can see where I've been, and often it makes sense looking backwards, but I don't know exactly where I'm going. And yet we oftentimes want everything in our life to make perfect sense. This is what happened to Job. The Bible says in the Old Testament that Job was a righteous man, a godly man, who suffered great loss. He suffered great tragedy in his life. And for 37 chapters, Job and his friends questioned God. God, I don't understand why this happened. I don't understand. Let me try to make sense of this. And they questioned God for 37 chapters. And after 37 chapters, God shows up. And when God shows up, he says, Job, let me ask you a few questions. And when God begins to chapter, question Job, Job has no answer for God. And in Job chapter number 42, Job says this, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. You being God said, listen now and I will speak and I will question you and you shall answer me. And then Job says this, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. 
Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. In other words, Job struggled with questions, questions about why these things happened, why God didn't show up, why this happened, why that didn't happen. God, he's trying to speculate and have answers to everything in life, but God never gave him all the answers. But when he met God face to face, Job says, you know what? I despise myself, I repent. God, you are God, and I am not. Job embraced the mystery. John chapter 13, verse number 7, Jesus spoke to the people and he said, You do not now realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. Let me tell you something. Some of you need to write down this verse and put that one on your refrigerator. Because when we go through life, my friends, there are two things you can be assured of. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, first of all, you can be guaranteed that you will see the goodness and the power and the glory of God in your life. You will see God answer prayers. You will experience things you never thought possible. You will sense things that you never sensed before. You will see the God of the universe interacting in and through your life. But the second thing, my friends, that I guarantee you will be true is that God will lead you sometimes through troubled waters. And sometimes he will allow you to go through life and allow you to flail. And he will not always show up when we want, how we want, His timing is not always going to be our timing. Sometimes we pray prayers and we look around and we say, listen, I've been asking for this and he got it and I didn't. And and, and why are they getting a miracle and I'm not getting a miracle? And God, when are you going to open a door? Listen, let me tell you something. There are godly people who pray and tithe and still suffer bankruptcy. There are Christian people who love Jesus and honor him with their business whose businesses still go under. There are godly people who still get in traffic accidents. There are wonderful people who love Jesus who get cured with, who get, who get diagnosed with incurable diseases. And sometimes God shows up and does miraculous interventions. And sometimes God sits back in seemingly silence and allows us to walk through troubled waters. And sometimes we can say to ourselves, God, I don't understand what is going on. But the the statement where Jesus says, I am, reminds us of the theological truth that regardless of what we face in life, he is God. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is all-knowing. He is good. It also reminds us of the practical reality that sometimes we cannot fully comprehend the works, the words, and the goodness of God. The people could not comprehend That in their midst, physically, was Jesus, a man that was fully human and yet fully God. And rather than prove himself, rather than show himself to to be who he said he was, he simply hides and slips through the crowd and allows the people to flail. Some with anger, some with bewilderment, and some with faith. At the end of the day, the question is this, though. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you say that he is God? Because if we say that he is God, it means that we are called to submit our lives to his authority. It means that we are to trust in his sovereignty even when we do not understand, even when we cannot conceptualize or fully grasp what is happening in our lives. Today, 2,000 years later, people have all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is, just like they did in John chapter 7 and 8. Richard Dawkins, the well-known author and atheist, says Jesus was a great moral teacher. Somebody as intelligent as Jesus, he said, would most surely have been an atheist if he would have known what we know today. 
Mikhail Gorbachev, the former Russian leader, said Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. The artist Vincent van Gogh says that Jesus lived serenely as a greater artist than all other artists. The author, Ralph Waldo Emerson, said that Jesus belongs to the true race of prophets. He saw with open eye the mystery of the soul, drawn by its severe harmony, ravished with its beauty. He lived in it and had his being there, alone in all of history, he says. Jesus estimated the greatness of man. The great scientist Albert Einstein said, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by this luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus, he said, was too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. No man, said Einstein, can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. No one can match the authentic validity of Jesus. But yet he did not believe in him as the Son of God. The historian H.G. Wells says, I am a historian. I am not a believer. I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he said. I am a historian, not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of human history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. And the former atheist debater Christopher Hitchens says, Jesus is Santa Claus for adults. Who do you say he is? Are you willing to say that he is God? And if we're willing to trust Jesus at his word, if we're willing to trust that he's not Santa Claus, and he's not an atheist, and he's not a socialist, and he's not just a great artist, and he's not just a wise, luminous figure, if we're able to acknowledge him as God, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that you're God. If we're able to confess that with our mouth, we must be willing to walk by faith and trust him in all elements of our life. We are to pray for the miraculous. We are to ask God to show up, and oftentimes he will in great and dynamic ways. But when we have questions like the people had, how can you be God and man and he hides and seems to be silent? When we pray for something only to see the opposite at work, when we are asking for a sign and all we hear is silence, we are praying for an open door and the door just keeps closing in our face. Are we willing to trust him even when we cannot see? Because when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, he was saying, I am God. And the people could not comprehend that theologically, but they could not see it practically. For most of us today, it's easier for us to believe that theologically. But the practical implication of Jesus being God being completely sovereign is hard for us sometimes to trust in. But as we close, what I want to ask you to do is I want to ask you to join me in simply singing and praising God and acknowledging, just acknowledging God for who he is. And in praising God, singing a song of faith, a song of trust, God, I am acknowledging you are who you said you are. And in doing so, I'm raising my hands and I'm trusting you with every element Heavenly Father, I pray that you help us to truly receive you as the great I am. In the midst of loneliness, in the midst of physical ailment, in the midst of broken relationship and sick bodies, 
in the midst of financial problems and pink slips, in the midst of depression, in the midst of fear. I pray, dear God, that you help us to trust you. Even when you seem to be hidden and we cannot figure out what you are doing, we cannot comprehend what we read in your word and what we see in this life in front of us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to trust in your goodness that one day we may see your glory. And as you told the disciples, for now you do not understand, but, but at some point you will. I pray, God, you help us to walk by faith, trusting you, because without faith it is impossible to please you. And I pray, dear God, that you will show up and that we will see your goodness as we raise our hands, as we surrender our hearts to your sovereignty as the great I am.